1: This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Friday, December 7th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The other day, my friends at 538, I'm really only just friends with one of them. I'm uh, podcast friends with a few of them. We're talking about the Bush era They were discussing the Republican Party, how it's changed, and they made this assertion.
2: It's more overtly racist. At least it's in, in its messaging and policy.
1: The Republican Party of today is more overtly racist than it was in 1990. I wonder if that's true. Let's talk about overt racism. Uh, to, To make our assessment, we do have to say this. The Republican Party is not just Donald Trump. I will not ask any of you to get into the heart of Donald Trump. We need to put him aside. Let's talk about the party. Is the party more overtly racist? I would say not. If you look at survey questions about, say, intermarriage, uh, attitudes towards intermarriage have improved. I'm going to say improved. I'll, I'll give it the subjective sheen and weigh in with the it's okay to intermarry questions about are black people less intelligent than white people show that fewer people hold those opinions. So society as a whole has been trending towards the less racist now, you might say, well, that's not only racism. I know, but we're not talking about the stuff under the surface. We're talking about overtly racist. So, as society has gotten less racist, or at least less overtly racist, you know, how they answer the pollsters' questions, as they've gotten less overtly racist, the Republican Party, because it wants to represent, you know, half, almost half of the people, has been dragged along, and they have had to get less overtly racist than they were in the 1990s. Look, in 1990, no one that I know of was talking about taking Confederate flags down. And in 2018, there's not one in South Carolina. In fact, only one state has a Confederate flag on it. And yes, there are people who object. And yes, those people are Republicans when they identify by a political party, by and large. But Nikki Haley, Republican governor of South Carolina, led the charge to take down the flag And so we should say that the Republican Party, just on that score, is less overtly racist now than they were then. Let's talk about the racism of the Republican Party today. Again, putting aside Trump. In Florida, the phrase monkey up was used in the race between Ron DeSantis and Andrew Gillum. But is that overt racism? I don't want to even get into the is it racism. I just want to concentrate on the overt. Is that overt racism? Let's say it was. All right. Well, we'll say that was an example of a white man running against a black man using something that's somewhere in between overt racism and dog whistle racism. In Georgia, Brian Kemp didn't say any phrases He did work to disenfranchise black voters. You know what that is? That's racist, but it's not overtly racist. It's horrible. It's clearly a racist policy, but it's based on winning the elections. And he could say, no, 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 it's about voter fraud. And, you know, I don't know if it's overtly racist. Mississippi, Cindy Hyde-Smith, said she would attend a public hanging to show support for a donor. Yeah, I would say that ain't great. That seems racist to me. But are they overtly racist? Maybe you're arguing this in your head. Maybe you're saying, Mike, how do you not see them as racist? I just want to contrast the overt racism of then and now because I will now go to the then. Then you had Jesse Helms running against Harvey Gantt, a black man, in the race for Senate in North Carolina. I'll read you from some of the New York Times coverage in Amen Corner at Perry's Hardware Store, Glenn Bridgers had just listened to an old-timer give his opinion in angry language laced with racial slurs of Harvey Gantt's chances of defeating Senator Jesse Helms and becoming the South's first black senator since Reconstruction. Quote, I don't think you'll hear much of that in public, but in private, there are just too many old-town North Carolina boys for Gantt to win, said Mr. Bridges, a 30-year-old insurance agent and Helms supporter people say this reason or that one, but a lot of them aren't going to vote for a black man. The article continues, despite a surge in recent weeks by Mr. Gant, Helm seems to be regaining some momentum by explicitly invoking race in a contest in which Mr. Gant needs 40% of the white vote to win. This was before the culmination of this explicit invocation, one of the most notorious ads ever. This is the ad called Hands, where we see a pair of white hands dealing with a unemployment notice, a pink slip. Here is what it says. You needed that job
0: and you were the best qualified,
1: but they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt says it is. This is overt, people. This is Republican overt racism. Here from the floor of the Senate the bill in question to amend Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by establishing a revolving fund for use of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We go now to South Carolina, Senator.
2: Passage of this bill is tantamount to handing the jailhouse keys to thousands of convicted state and federal prisoners. They went on to urge the Senate, and I quote, to reject this poor use for a crime control bill. Now, who was I talking about? I was talking about the National District Attorneys Association.
1: Later, this assertion.
2: These are the victims of the nation. People who have been robbed. People who have been raped. And people who have had assaults committed upon them.
1: Yeah, I think we know which color of the people who have been raped that he's talking about. He's not subtle. He was overt. And that is all I am saying. That there was more overt racism then putting aside this Trump guy we're dealing with now. We generally not just take progress for granted, but think of it like the atmosphere. Just like when the smog gets a little bad year by year, It might sneak up on you. We don't say, oh, four years ago, the smog in L.A. was worse. It just kind of feels worse, and it maybe affects your life without you realizing it. But then, and this has happened lately, when the skies clear up, even if they do it little by little, there's not one day where you see a stark difference, and you say, today is the day where you can breathe and the skies are clear. So what I'm saying is Donald Trump represents a smokestack spewing toxins, and therefore it's hard to see the horizon clearly. On the show today, it's an antan-twig, a three-week period where we check in and issue corrections, and I interact with you, the listener. But first, Elizabeth Holtzman has written a book called The Case for Impeaching Trump. This is hot on the heels of her 2006 work, The Impeachment of George W. Bush, A Practical Guide for Concerned Citizens. Okay, 12 years in between, not that hot on the heels, but you got to remember, we had the Obama interregnum. The former DA and member of Congress, Liz Holtzman, dropped by our studios with the unrigged non-witch hunt case for impeachment. The youngest woman ever elected to the House of Representatives, beating an incumbent from a borough of New York in the Democratic primary, going on to win office, causing a sensation, You think you know who I'm talking about, but you don't. I'm talking about Elizabeth Holtzman, or as I knew her all those years growing up in New York, Liz Holtzman. She is now the author of The Case for Impeaching Trump. She served on the Judiciary Committee that did just that or recommended the impeachment of Richard Nixon. Former Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman joins me. Hello. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: So I'm going to get to impeachment, but I want to ask you a question or two. When you joined the House of Representatives, how many women were there?
2: Oh, I think there were fewer than 20.
1: Yeah. So were you treated, you're a member of Congress, you should be afforded all the rights and status, but were you? Were there elements of discrimination because you were a woman? Well, I'll tell you, when I was
2: uh, lobbying not to get on the House Judiciary Committee... Um, I didn't want to be on the committee
1: even though it turned out to be right
2: really the right committee to be on but I it didn't, didn't know seem, that but it didn't
1: it didn't seem like a plum assignment at the time <laughs>
2: definitely not I went to one of the members of the ways and means committee who was instrumental in making the selection of committee assignments and he looked at me and he said nah, Ms. holtzman just because you're a woman and a Jew you don't have Anything to worry about here? <laughs> but you want to know something? He was right. <laughs> yeah. And just to give you, some... I was really upset by that comment, but uh, he turned out to be right because in the end, the seniority system, which was at work, allowed me to move up in yeah. the system, and I became chair of a subcommittee. On top of that, um, because of my work on the House Judiciary Committee, which during the impeachment process against Richard Nixon, which won the respect of the American people. My colleagues in the House were very grateful to all of us who served on that committee because we restored the reputation of the House of Representatives. So I got a little extra (laughs) – I might have deserved it, but I got a little extra uh, respect and uh, support
1: in the House. Okay. Let's get on to uh, the impeaching or the case for impeaching Trump. It starts off with an argument against those like Alan Dershowitz, your former professor, who would say that while we might find Trump's actions objectionable or immoral – the remedy is not an impeachment remedy. It's if you want to vote, vote him out, vote him out, or if you want to oppose his policies. Why do you say Dershowitz is wrong? Well, Dershowitz is wrong for several reasons. The framers of the Constitution
2: actually had this very debate. Should there be impeachment to remove a president from office? Some people said, we don't need impeachment. We've got elections every four years. What do we need impeachment for? Others came back and said, think about the damage a president can do until the election takes place, during the four years of office. That was the argument that, won. the framers understood they needed to deal with a rogue president in office. And then there were serious conversations and debates about what the grounds were for impeachment. The framers were trying to walk a fine line. They didn't want the Congress to control the president. They wanted a strong president. On the other hand, they wanted to be able to preserve democracy, and they knew a president could destroy democracy in many ways. And so they created three grounds for impeachment, treason, which is defined in the Constitution, bribery, which is a pretty well understood term, Mm -hmm. and then something called high crimes and misdemeanors. High crimes and misdemeanors is a very obscure term. Most people have no idea what it means, and sad to say, Professor Dershowitz doesn't either because a high crime and misdemeanor doesn't talk about a normal crime. It means a crime committed by somebody
1: in political or public office. Right. People maybe hear that phrase and say, oh, serious crimes and misdemeanors, but then think about it. Why would the word misdemeanors be put in there if you meant Serious, So high refers to the office. But Correct. this opens a door, and I know that you quote Professor Black and and uh, Cass Sunstein. Does high crimes and misdemeanors, in your estimation, is the definition of that anything Congress wants it to do? No. Be?
2: That's what Gerald Ford said when he was trying to impeach Justice William Douglas. He yeah. said, of course, Congress can impeach anybody for any grounds. I mean, I guess Congress can do what it wants to do, but if Congress is adhering to the law and not abusing its powers— then it has to adhere to the definition.
1: Well, that's what, in a way, I'm doing Dershowitz's work for him. He does say a president should be only uh, impeached for criminal acts. But that's wrong. Totally wrong. But then if he (laughs) could be impeached for non-criminal acts, what is the definition? Ford's definition is whatever Congress says. Yes, but
2: that was was not accepted at that time. And we created a pretty good definition during the impeachment proceedings against Richard Nixon which won not only uh, respect from all the members of the House of Representatives and from the Senate, there's no question that Nixon resigned rather than be actually convicted by Mm -hmm. the Senate and removed from office, but the definition was one that people could understand. Namely, it's an egregious misuse of the power of the office of president that threatens the democracy, the rule of law, or the civil liberties of Americans. That's a, I know it's not a precise standard, but it's a pretty strong standard. It eliminates spitting on the sidewalk, getting a traffic ticket. It focuses on the, using the powers of the presidency to subvert the Constitution, to oppress the people. That to create great and dangerous offenses. The framers did not want to limit themselves to crimes. In fact, there wasn't, at the time they voted for the Constitution, there wasn't a statute book yet. So how could they have said
1: it's going to be crimes? Not to be Donald Trump's defense attorney because Mr. Giuliani is doing a job. I don't know if it's an able job, but... You know, if there was no underlying crime or misdeed, and maybe even if he doesn't perceive to be an underlying crime or misdeed, his statements calling it a witch hunt, his perhaps you could even argue his removal of an FBI director who seemed unduly obsessed with that, many of his actions, if they don't actually stem from actual misdeeds, I think he would argue are excusable. But you don't think so? First of all, I want to go back to the
2: House Judiciary Committee and the precedent that we set. I want to make it very clear. The House Judiciary Committee, which is the only – the action against Richard Nixon, the only impeachment effort that has withstood the test of time and historical scrutiny. It's now almost 50 years or about 50 years, half a century.
1: Because Andrew Johnson doesn't.
2: doesn't and the one against Clinton doesn't. Right. But what we established as a standard is that it doesn't have to be a crime. Richard Nixon was never charged with a crime in the Articles of Impeachment. In my book, I have the Articles of Impeachment against Richard Nixon. You will not find any reference to a statute. You will not find any reference to violation of the criminal law. What you will find is abuse of power and what you will find is egregious misdeeds by the president. So let's get away from criminal conduct. We don't need that. What we need is a ob- serious, egregious, abusive power by the
1: president. What is this book's relationship with the pending Mueller report? I assume pending. Is it a case of it would. This alone is good enough, even without the Mueller well, report. Well, no. I don't or, say that yeah. there's
2: a ground for impeachment. The only specific ground I think that there is now that we don't really need a thorough investigation of is the pardon offer. But What an investigation would show would be how many other offers were made at Trump's behalf of pardons to keep
1: people quiet. Would it be better for our democracy if he were impeached based on essentially the case you've made? No further smoking guns that Mueller unearthed. So uh, basically the knowledge that we have now. So that's one set of facts. Or... For some reason the votes aren't there, something or impeachment but not conviction happens, and then the President President Trump is roundly defeated at the polls. What would be better for our democracy?
2: Best for the democracy is for us thoroughly to examine the abuses, the apparent abuses of power, and apparent misconduct by the President of the United States. That's what has to be done. Congress was given under the Constitution. The framers put the power of impeachment, which they felt was necessary, not four years for an election, not the Dershowitz argument or whoever's making that argument, but that we have to have impeachment. Who has the power and who therefore has the responsibility to act? It was given to Congress because it's closest to the people. The House of Representatives is where it starts. So that's what has to happen. Congress has to act here. Congress is given the responsibility to preserve the democracy. We have a president who seems... On the face of it, to have abused the power and committed possible impeachable offenses, Congress has to conduct the investigations. And if the investigations produce the evidence, then it has to move towards impeachment.
1: I don't know if you think that Ronald Reagan should have been impeached over Iran-Contra. Those articles were drawn up too. But if we look back at every Republican president since Nixon, if you are recommending impeachment to most of them, does that color not, our mm, interpretation of you calling no, the impeachment think, of Trump? No, I think—I just—look—
2: The fact of the matter is that Congress has been very timid. Why they didn't go after Bush, I don't know. I mean, there were people in the House of Representatives who participated in the decisions about torture. I mean, so there could have been a self-interest involved. So I, I don't know why Congress didn't do it. I think what we have now in the United States is an imperial presidency. That's not what the framers wanted. We tried to correct that in connection with Nixon, when there were actually not only crimes but egregious abuses of power. Remember, Nixon was also named an unindicted co-conspirator by the Watergate grand jury. They wanted to indict him. The Watergate grand jury we know wanted to indict Richard Nixon for crimes that his his aides were indicted for, and the special prosecutor said he couldn't. So the fact that Congress didn't act appropriately to hold other presidents in check, it's a sad commentary about Congress, but that doesn't mean – that we should let this power that Congress was given and not just the power but the responsibility um, go to waste and, and be like an old rusty sword that's never used. I mean it was designed by the framers. There were these poignant debates. Why do we need impeachment? We've got you know, right. the election system. No, they said it's not enough.
1: Yeah. And I want to be fair. I don't want to allege that you are the uh, boy who cried wolf. It might well be the case that there really was a wolf in all those past um Well, instances. I never <laughs> called for
2: the impeachment of Ronald Reagan right. and I never called for the impeachment of George Bush. I mean I think what we had with regard to uh, 43, George W. Bush – was was very serious, taking the country to war on basis of deception. I was there for the—I wasn't in Congress, but I lived through the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. Uh, how many thousands—65,000 Americans died in the Vietnam War? Johnson should have been impeached for that, basically, I think. That was a horrific thing. And here we have George Bush, basically the same thing. Weapons of mass destruction, they knew they were—they were—, they were fiddling with the evidence and they were manipulating the evidence and they were manipulating the CIA. Remember Dick Cheney went down to the CIA headquarters. So the fact that you have or haven't called for the murder prosecution of other murderers doesn't mean that you can't call for the murder prosecution of someone who's committed a murder in front of your face. That's a ridiculous argument. The most important thing is Congress has a responsibility under the Constitution and they can't shirk it now.
1: Elizabeth Holtzman, former U.S. Congresswoman from Brooklyn, her new book is The Case for Impeaching Trump. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now, the spiel. It's an antan twig, our word for a three-week period. A three-week period that I always violate. Future etymologists will look up antan twig and say, I thought it meant Old English for 21. One in 20, yes, but then it came to mean just any period that was supposed to be three weeks but wasn't. Like moment, how moment doesn't have a strict definition. Last antan twig, October 26th. So much has happened since then. The blue wave... An Ariana Grande video, back then we thought Zuckerberg was pretty shady and Sheryl Sandberg was maybe not all that. Well, since then, I have got some updates for you. Number one, order of magnitude. In the last Antan Twig, I mistakenly miscalculated order of magnitude. Here's how it works. Every order of magnitude is the power to which 10 is raised. So if I say it increases by an order of magnitude, it means it increases 10 times. You knew that. I knew that. But I think on the show I said something was off by 60, so six orders of magnitude. Oh, no, 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 Mike, horribly wrong. That'd be a million. Six orders of magnitude is 10 to the sixth power. One with six zeros behind it. Yeah, a million. You know, I so do enjoy knowledge that even if the acquisition of said knowledge comes at the cost of, you know, being humiliated in front of 200 people writing in or tweeting in saying, you got it wrong, I'll take it. That's how much I love knowledge. It's also why I don't object to the now horrible calumny of well-actually. I see this a lot on Twitter. Oh, my God, you just well-actually'd him. Well-actually, well-actually is a good thing. Let's say we lived in a world without well-actually. It would be flat, wouldn't it? Didn't Copernicus well-actually the church? Well-actually, it was first Johann Kepler, a Dutch guy. Shut up. On another show, I listed things that I was a little upset about. Very little. Almost didn't care. I mean, I want to say I care about these things. But you know the phrase, I could care less. The phrase should be I couldn't care less. But some people say I could care less. I listed a bunch of things where I could care less. And then I got to one thing where it was really I couldn't care less. And that thing was Whitey Bulger had just been killed in prison by his fellow prisoners. And I'm supposed to be upset, but I really wasn't. Some of the other things I talked about were hemp. Which brings me to at being amused, says hemp makes paper, cloth, plastics, fuel, leave the trees, oil stays underground, huge for ag, eco, sustainability, RE hippies, very low THC, windborne, pollen, V bad for pot quality love. So I got a little pushback on me saying I do not care that much about hemp activists. But then when I started talking about, you know what else is an issue? Those roles for older actresses no, I'm supposed to care. I just can't gin up much concern. Got this note. I think this is less about getting some actresses better jobs. More seriously, it is a reflection of the way that women are too often viewed by our society of no value unless men think they are sexy. And of their lack of power in Hollywood to greenlight stories about them. Easy to overlook the larger point if you don't see it from a woman's point of view. And that was written by Alexandra Randolph. Everything you say is true. So you got hemp, you got roles for Older actresses, people said I should care more. I also talked about water in the West. I'm just so bored by those stories. And of course, the plastic straw ban, it's 0.03% of all the plastic in the ocean, meaning if there's a ton and a half, 3,000 pounds of plastic, you got one pound of that being straws. It's not that big a deal, people. So I could care less about them. Plastic straws, water in the West. Let me quote David Ho. He wrote to me and said, everyone should care about water in the West. Have you read Cadillac Desert? And no one should use a straw unless he or she is lame. That is a good callback to our lame debate. So the number one cause that I couldn't get upset about, I mean, it's wrong. This is not something I endorse, but I think everything else in society might be more wrong. It's when prisoners band together to kill a much worse prisoner. Jeffrey Dahmer, Whitey Bulger, cut to Mike Lerman emailing me to tell me, I should care more. Mike, I think you should really reevaluate your least favorite cause. Of all the causes, you went with extrajudicial murder? What I wonder is, what are the virtues of your position? Ah, uh, to interrupt, Whitey Bulger's dead. But, no, nope. Lerman continues. I have to be honest. I don't see any side from an appeal to base retribution, which is no virtue at all. Again, no more Dahmer. I think if you think about it more, you may agree. I may. I may. But you know what I did instead of agreeing with you? And it's a good email. Like, your points are better than my points. This is just what I care about. So you know what I did? I invented a new one. I now care about something even less than I care about the grave injustice that is the murder of mass murderer Whitey Bulger. You ready? The body positivity backlash. So a couple months ago, Amy Schumer's in a movie. It's called I Feel Pretty. The premise is she gets knocked on a head. She starts acting like she's this beautiful supermodel. And because she believes in her own beauty, people treat her as beautiful. It seems like a fine enough message. If the movie was funny, you should go see it. There was backlash. Why? Oh, Amy Schumer putting yourself in a movie as if you're not pretty. You're pretty. You're far too pretty to play unpretty. Pretty, pretty Amy. They pretty shamed her. It's true. There are some people quite uglier than Amy Schumer. Many, many people. How many of those people have the ability to get a big Hollywood rom-com greenlit? Maybe just Paul Giamatti. What I'm saying is, of course, Amy is quite lovely by the standards of just regular people you see every day. But in reality, she is a character actress by leading lady standards, and that's why the movie made sense. We're seeing it again. We have the star of The Good Place, Jamila Jamil. She is the subject of the Vox cover story, how Jamila Jamil built a brand around body positivity and why she's facing backlash for it now. Second part first, because everyone ever engaged in body positivity faces a backlash. Sometimes it's mean trolls calling you a troll, but this one is from the legions of body positivity activists who will always find you not trollish enough. Jamila Jamil is quite pretty. This is one of the reasons she's on TV. As a person who's on TV and pretty, she has a platform, so she tells stories about how she once gained 75 pounds and how it's unfair to be judged by her beauty, and she refuses to let photos of her be photoshopped or airbrushed. She does pictures where you can see the lines on her body. I didn't know this was a bad thing. Do I have a lines on the body fetish? I don't know, but anyway, it seems like everything she's done is totally fine unless You are the kind of person who has been in that body positivity space a little bit longer than Jamila Jamil or has suffered a little bit more. And then you will come at her and you will say, How dare you? I am larger than you. I have worse cheekbones. I am, and this is where it stops getting funny and starts getting a little dicey. I am a shade darker because that has been a particular focus of the critique of Jamila Jamil. I will quote Vox again. Jamila was also accused of erasing the work of black women like body positive activist Stephanie Yeboah, who claims that Jamil once quoted her in an interview without attribution. I looked into it. Oh God, is it not worth it? Erased her. So this is how, how Stephanie Yeboah was erased. Stephanie Yeboah Told Jamil in a series of uh, DM exchanges, you know, you should look at the issue of body positivity this way. And Jamila Jamil did look at it that way. And then in an interview, in a later interview, really echoed the words that she had been told by this, you know, more hardcore body positivity activist. And because she echoed those words outside of quotation marks, she has been accused of erasure. Can we not break these chains of love? Which is why body positivity, negativity is the new issue that I certainly care about. I absolutely care. It's not a non-issue. It's an issue. But I care about it less than hemp activism, Whitey Bulger getting offed in prison, water in the West, and every other issue in the world. I also get listener feedback from those about some of my guests, and I'd like to quote Mr. Kevin Volkman. The entirety of his message was just in the subject line, subject, Maria Konnikova should be encouraged to use fewer opprobrious terms. In response, I have Maria Konnikova right here. Maria, what do you say to Kevin Volkman's request that you use fewer opprobrious terms?
2: I sincerely apologize for being scornful or critical of anything on a segment called Is That Bullshit? From now on, we are just going to smile and say that everything is wonderful and nothing is bullshit. (laughs) And if you just look at the world in uh, pink glasses or or rose-colored glasses, right? Mm -hmm. Rose-colored glasses, that everything will be wonderful. So, in your honor all of our segments will,
0: from, will henceforth be known as that's definitely not bullshit. <laughs> Please don't worry about it.
1: Take that, Volkman, you with your redundant last name. Thank you, Maria. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Let us go now to the Lopstar of the Antan Twig, our award for just the greatest listener, the person who emailed or texted or, no, you don't have my text number, or got in touch with us, tweeted something to improve our lives. The runner-up is Real Barabas or Barabbas, B-A-R-A-B-B-A-S, who was reacting to a segment where I was talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger laying claim to having broken Barbara Bush's leg, kind of unclear based on what he said, and real Barabbas weighed in to say, Schwarzenegger was saying he and Bush were very active, and to highlight that as a separate thought, says later in the same day, Barbara Bush broke her leg participating in a familial activity. I just wanted to... Mention this as the runner up for the Antan twig because it's the first instance in my life where I was Arnold Schwartz explained. But the lobster of the Antan twig goes to Michael Martin. And what Michael Martin did was he tweeted me or perhaps emailed me a link to a series of stories after my interview with James Geary, who wrote a book on wit. I asked Geary. Is there Are there puns in sign language and he didn't know? And Michael Martin tweeted me this link about different puns in sign language. First of all, in British sign language, divorce is taking your ring off and throwing it on the floor. I have no idea is mouthing pow and shooting your index fingers over your head, meaning the information has gone over your head. In Ireland, the sign for Ireland is not British. I think this is around the world. Ireland translates as potato plus island but this is my favorite thing, El Paso, right? The L, you make the sign for the L, and then with your other hand, you make the sign for an O, and then you have the sign for the L go in front of the sign for the O, literally, El O. It has been explained that this may be more of a pun to we people who understand sounds and the sounds of the word, but it is still so fantastic and I appreciate Michael Martin for alerting me to the ASL sign for El Paso and you, Michael, are the lopstar of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They are less overtly specious than they were in 1990. T.J. Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She has strictly adhered to the emoluments clause, in fact, both emoluments clause, in all her endeavors. Hey, the newsletter is available. So you sign up at slate.com slash gistnews. You get it in the mail on Saturday. And this is really the only way to find out an answer to this trivia question. So it's a nice, satisfying lag. Between me asking the question I'm about to ask and you getting it, here's the question. Let's say you walk every street and private road in New York City, how many miles have you walked? That'll be in the trivia. Trivia answer. The gist. You know, if you combine the Sacramento River and body positivity, you'd get body of water positivity in the West. And I think we could get Deborah Winger attached. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.